Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Eugene Pietzak from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center talking about genomics of bladder cancer. Thank you for the opportunity to present on the genomics of bladder cancer for the Urology COVID lecture series. My name is Eugene Pizak. I'm a uh, attending surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering with a focus in bladder cancer. I'm also in the David Salt lab where I focus on bladder cancer uh, translational research. Um, these are my disclosures. This is the outline for my talk. Instead of focusing on a, you know, giving naming a bunch of uh, genes and their proteins and sort of overwhelming you with that type of detail, uh, what I've decided to do instead is focus primarily on uh, some of the high yield topics within bladder cancer genomics, with a particular focus on the more clinically relevant aspects of it. Uh, so the outline of my talk will focus initially on the highly prevalent uh, chromatin modifying gene mutations and the uh, relevance of that, uh, focused on some of the so-called actionable targeted therapies within bladder cancer, uh, focusing in particular on FGFR3, uh, the furthest along in development, and then, uh, then ending with this uh, segment focused on DNA damage repair genes uh, and their role both in muscle invasive bladder cancer as well as non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So I hope that this is highly uh, relevant and uh, of interest to the, the people watching this. So just in the way of some brief background, what I'm going to do is present a bunch of what are called oncoprints. Um, and just if you're not familiar with these, so they don't seem overwhelming, um, it's basically just a, a gra graphical method to display what is complex genomic information. And what it really is, is a way for the researchers to tell a story um, and that story includes what's being shown on the graph, but also what's not being shown on the graph as well. So you'd be mindful of that. So uh, to interpret these oncoprints, basically each column represents an individual patient or individual tumor. And so each one of these columns over here. So uh, this is an example um, where in this oncoprint, the clinical and pathologic details are presented up top. The actual genomics um, genomic alterations that are seen are found here. And then the type of genomic alterations, which could vary based off what the oncoprint is, but the legend is typically also presented. So for example, this first tumor over here, um, this is a patient where I guess there wasn't uh, information on whether or not they had BCG treatment or disease recurrence. This is probably a patient treated with an immediate cystectomy. They had an FGFR3 ampl amplification, and then they had an ERBB3 uh, recurrent missense mutation. And then the next, next patient over here, um, dark over here means they received BCG, they did not have a recurrence and they have a FGFR3 fusion and, and so on. So this, this uh, oncoprint basically gives you information about what, uh, you know, what the uh, genomic background is for each individual tumor. And as I mentioned, it sort of is there to tell a story. So most of my talk's gonna uh, focus on two primary papers. Um, this is from the large TCGA, the uh, Cancer Genome Atlas effort, which is uh, of muscle invasive, uh, neoadjuvant uh, naive muscle invasive tumors. Uh, and the initial uh, 
paper, there was 131 tumors that were sequenced. Now there's over 400 that are presented in this most recent 2017 publication. And this is just the representative uh, oncoprint landscape that is shown over here. The other one is a paper from our group at MSK, which used targeted exome sequencing of uh, non-Muslim invasive patients to display the genomic landscape of non-Muslim invasive disease. And this is the relevant uncle print, which I'll walk you through as we, uh, we go through the details. And so just uh, in this particular uncle print, it uh, includes low-grade patients, low-grade TA tumors, high-grade TA, high-grade T1. Uh, as well as some uh, muscle invasive tumors just for comparison purposes. Notably, what is missing from this is carcinoma in situ. This is all tissue-based approaches. And because of the scant cellularity of carcinoma in situ, um, there, there wasn't high yield in that. So it's not included here. As I had mentioned, this is the story that we're telling. And it's mostly a papillary non-muscle invasive tumors here. Okay, so onto our first um, sort of story. It's the importance of chromatin remodeling genes in bladder cancer. And so the chromatin remodeling genes are basically responsible for either uh, expressing or repressing genes by uh, modifying histones and modifying the chromatin uh, in packaging. And so there are what are called writers as well as erasers and, and so-called readers, which could either increase transcription or uh, suppress transcription in a very tightly regulated way. So this is essentially sort of these genes um, lead to epigenetic modifications, which are, are particularly relevant because they're quite pervasive in bladder cancers. I'll show you in the subsequent slides. Um, and a mutation in one of these genes could have multiple downstream effects. And so again, this is the TCGA, muscle invasive specimens. And as you can see here, some of the most common alterations are in these chromatin remodeling genes over here, over here as well. And there's additional ones that aren't highlighted here, but they are quite pervasive throughout muscle invasive specimens, uh, as well as in non-muscle invasive space uh, specimens as well. So, um, the importance is, is quite interesting. Recently, there's been two science papers which basically did uh, whole exome sequencing of histologic normal appearing urethelium from patients uh, that died from other causes at autopsy, did not have bladder cancer, as well as patients that, ha uh, that had bladder cancer. Um, so two different series, one in uh, bladder cancer patients and one in non-bladder cancer cancer patients. And what they found is in both those series that in uh, histologic normal appearing urethelium, there was a high rate of somatic mutations within these chromatin modifying genes. And that these led to what's called clonal expansion. And eventually in the case of malignant transformation, a second hit, a second tumor uh, mutation uh, would have occurred before the tumor formed. Uh, so what this is suggestive of these chromatin remodeling gene alterations are probably one of the earliest mutations that occurs in bladder cancer. And generally there's a second hit that occurs before there's malignant transformation that occurs. Uh, so this gives us some insight into the pathogenesis for which bladder cancer develops um, and uh, some insight into that disease process. Uh, interestingly, because uh, obviously the bladder is involved with the uh, collection of urine uh, that provides the potential opportunity to do sequencing of the, uh, 
the urine cells that are uh, shed. And you can look into some, what's called cell-free uh, DNA within the urine itself. So these are uh, um, DNA fragments that are captured within the urine. And in this uh, publication from the Stanford group over here, as you can see, patients with bladder cancer uh, very commonly will have uh, tumor mutations within the urine themselves, where healthy adults generally do not have any alterations uh, present. And what is interesting is in patients that have detectable or patients with uh, bladder cancer who have detectable uh, urine tumor DNA present, uh, they're at higher likelihood of recurring on surveillance cystoscopy. So this, uh, this suggests that uh, screening for these chromatin modifying genes, which are again, very high, highly pervasive within bladder cancer, could be used potentially as a screening test to detect bladder cancer and say a hematuria workup compared to a healthy adult. Uh, and it could also serve as a indicator for surveillance, potentially avoiding the need for an invasive office cystoscopy uh, and monitoring patients for uh, what's called minimal residual disease after their TRBT or treatment to predict uh, whether someone will, will be more likely to recur. And compared to say um, urinary cytology, which are very good, very sensitive for high-grade tumors, uh, but not very, uh, not very sensitive for low-grade tumors, uh, something like urinary tumor DNA uh, may be uh, very robust in also detecting uh, low-grade uh, malignancies. Um, ARID1A, which is a chromatin modifying gene, just to highlight, and at least our um, investigation into looking at predictors of response to BCG, ARID1A was the only gene that we found out of 341 that we assessed that was associated with a risk of recurrence with BCG, uh, certainly earlier recurrence, even when correcting for uh, multiple comparisons. Uh, this appears to be independently validated at this point in time. Uh, however, sort of the functional ramifications of this are still unknown and still being investigated, um, and this work is ongoing. In patients with metastatic disease, ARID1A uh, appears to be associated with a favorable response to immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, which is quite interesting because their BCG and immune checkpoint inhibitors are basically two different types of immunotherapies, uh, but this is in two independent uh, clinical trials of immune checkpoint inhibitors in which uh, patients with mutated, uh, with a mutant form of ARID1A tended to do better with immune checkpoint inhibitors in the metastatic setting um, in these two independent uh, cohorts. And then in um, some publications looking at histone decetylase inhibitors, uh, which again uh, affect sort of the, the chromatin structure um, ARID1A may be a particularly relevant target for that. Um, and there's been, um, at least in what is uh, clear cell ovarian cancer, ovarian clear cell carcinoma, ARID1A mutations are very highly uh, prevalent in that. And there's uh, multiple studies showing that there's potential, what's called synthetic lethality, where if you treat with a specific drug in a specific mutational context, uh, that those tumors are exquisitely sensitive to such treatments. And there's numerous ones that have been investigated in clear cell ovarian cancer. Just to sort of highlight one of them is an EZH2 inhibitor, where basically um, when you have ARID1A loss, it increases the, uh, the overexpression of EZH2, uh, which again uh, works on the uh, 
transcriptional level on the, uh, the chromatin. And then um, basically unopposed because ARID1A is lost in those tumors. But if you treat with a EZH2 inhibitor, uh, then uh, these tumors are exquisitely sensitive to such treatment. So ARID1A may potentially be a therapeutic target in non-muscle invasive disease, potentially in more advanced settings as well. And there's numerous other potential agents that, uh, that could potentially be uh, tried in ARID1A mutated tumors. So the take home for the chromatin modifying gene portion is they are highly prevalent. Uh, it's, uh, the data suggests that these are early events in bladder cancer carcinogenesis and that uh, detection of these alterations in the urine may serve as a potential screening and or surveillance biomarker and then these may be potentially actionable alterations that could, uh, could have a uh, therapeutic implications. Uh, so moving on to targeted therapies in bladder cancer. Uh, in, within bladder cancer itself, there is uh, numerous potential therapeutic opportunities and there are numerous drugs as listed in these, these cartoon diagrams and the, the list of um, uh, open investigations down here. Um, and so this is obviously of much interest and excitement. Um, this is some data from the uh, MD Anderson group looking at their phase one clinical trial cohorts. And as you could see, just highlighting over here and looking at genomically matched clinical trials, um, two of the most common are FGFR3 and ERBB2. Uh, uh, ERBB2 is also known as HER2. And so um, very common in, in breast cancer as a, as a therapeutic um, uh, strategy. And so potential opportunities also in bladder cancer as well with ERBB2. Uh, I'm going to focus this segment primarily on FGFR3. Uh, as you could say here, it's, it's highly pervasive within, uh, within this phase one uh, protocol from MD Anderson. And if you look across all uh, stages for bladder cancer, FGFR3 alterations are very highly prevalent within low-grade TA tumors, also highly prevalent in high-grade TA tumors, especially in those without carcinoma in situ. There's a general uh, inverse relationship. Uh, CIS generally does not have FGFR3 alterations associated with it. Um, and as you go up in stage to um, high-grade T1, you'll notice that there's less, there's 40% essentially in, in, in high-grade T1. And then when you go to muscle invasive as well as metastatic, it drops down to about 20% as could be seen over here in, in uh, this oncoprint here. Uh, what's exciting about this is ertafitinib has been the first FDA approved targeted therapy for bladder cancer. It was approved in April, 2019. Uh, this is for patients with metastatic urothelial cancer with a FGFR3 mutation or fusion or an FGFR3 fusion. Uh, these patients, it's approval is after patients have progressed after platinum-based chemotherapy, uh, including if they've previously received um, immunotherapy. What's interesting though, is that although the objective response rate is fairly high, uh, these are, are, are in uh, genomically selected patients. So all patients had either FGFR2 or 3 alteration. Uh, however, obviously not all patients responded. So there's some complexity to the genome. There's co-alterations, other mutations that may be affecting response. Uh, and only 3% uh, had a complete response. So this is sort of a, a bit of a different story than what you see with immunotherapy, 
uh, where you know these patients essentially may have a more durable tail, uh, survival tail with immunotherapy. Um, the other notable thing for targeted therapies, systemic targeted therapies like ertafitinib and other targeted therapies, is that this is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and so side effects are not infrequent uh, and need to be managed. And so these are things that we need to be mindful of uh, with this. Uh, but there is much excitement. Uh, ertafitinib is certainly not the only FGFR3 inhibitor um, in ongoing investigations. BGJ was uh, published a couple of years ago. Uh, there's numerous other FGFR inhibitors as well that are under active investigation, and this is becoming an increasingly more and more exciting area, uh, looking at targeted therapies, uh, in part also because there is some emerging data that suggests that FGFR3 alterations are associated with a immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment, uh, and this, this sort of lends itself potentially to combinations with um, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, so this is uh, some data from the University of Chicago group reanalyzing the TCGA. They basically found a relationship between FGFR3 alterations and what's called the non-T-cell inflamed tumor microenvironment. Uh, this is some additional data looking at some mouse models of bladder cancer uh, amongst some other investigations in uh, looking at subtyping, again, showing that FGFR3 uh, alterations are associated with a uh, somewhat immunosuppressed tumor microenvironment. And then uh, this is data from the Cornell group looking at upper tract urothelial cancers, uh, where in upper tract urothelial cancers, FGFR3 alterations are quite common, uh, even more so than in uh, certainly muscle invasive tumors. And uh, potential uh, opportunity for FGFR inhibition in reversing some of the immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment that, uh, that, that was previously reported. So uh, this is a working hypothesis and an area of an active investigation amongst many labs and something that is uh, of uh, particular relevance uh, clinically. And I think we'll be seeing more and more of this in the future. Um, I also just want to highlight uh, that uh, actionable alterations are not just prevalent in muscle invasive and metastatic patients, but also potentially in patients with high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, this is the actually the example of the uncle print that I had given uh, at the beginning uh, intro slide, but this is looking at patients uh, with high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, and as you can see here, about 75% of them have at least one potentially actionable alteration and notice the mutually exclusive relationship between FGFR3 alterations and uh, ERBB2, her two mutations over here, uh, where you know they're non-overlapping here, which contrast to PIK3C mutations, CA mutations, um, where where those are co-altering with both FGFR3 as well as ERBB2, and just uh, of note of the patients treated with BCG. Uh, patients with FGFR3 as well as ERBB2 do as, as poorly as patients with wild-type tumors. So uh, this may be a potential avenue of further investigation. However, as I had mentioned, we, we need to be mindful of the fact of the systemic toxicities that may be present. There may be opportunities for intravescal treatments, uh, intravescal uh, targeted therapies. You know, there's a lot of uh, active investigation into this area that is ongoing. Um, and, and more to certainly explore here. But I think in the future, uh, this will be something of uh, particular relevance.
Uh, I just want to bring up the fact that there, there's not much time in this, this lecture to go over it, but uh, with regards to what are called the molecular subtypes of bladder cancer. Now, these are uh, gene expression based off RNA profiling. So RNA-seq, this is from the TCGA, um, where they basically designate uh, particular subtypes. These are sort of derived or borrowed initially from breast cancer subtypes, so luminal and basal subtyping. Uh, and there's been a lot of active investigation from multiple groups into these uh, RNA expression-based uh, molecular subtypes. I just want to highlight one in particular, which is called the luminal pap papillary uh, subtype, which are enriched in FGFR3 mutations over here. Um, and there is some at least preliminary data that suggests that these patients may be less likely to respond to chemotherapy. And some people argue that potentially they may benefit more from an FGFR3 inhibitor than from neoadjuvant chemotherapy. This still needs to be prospectively validated. Uh, but sort of a, a, a different take on a similar concept of trying to identify uh, patients for uh, targeted therapies like FGFR3 inhibition. So the take-homes from the targeted therapy are there's robust opportunities available in bladder cancer due to the numerous potential targets. Uh, Ertafitinib is the first FDA-approved targeted therapy, uh, but we expect that other FGFR inhibitors as well as other targeted therapies will likely be approved in the near future. And this is obviously a very exciting area. I do think uh, there's a lot of excitement potentially for the various combinations between targeted therapies and immunotherapies um, in the future as well. Uh, but we need to be mindful that you know, these drugs do have a cost to them and they do have uh, potential risks, usually systemic side effects. Uh, and as I had mentioned, patients with metastatic bladder cancer are going to be far more accepting of some of those side effects than potentially uh, patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And so we certainly need to be mindful of that. Um, and then, you know, due to the toxicity, it's, it's unclear how, you know, how, how long patients could potentially stay on some of these treatments. So we need to also do a little bit better as well, getting more selective treatments um, for that are that are targeted specifically at the mutation with less off-target effects, uh, and then moving on to the role for DNA damage response genes in muscle invasive bladder cancer, with the subtitle that uh, taking more of a precision medicine approach to uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So the current treatment paradigm for muscle invasive bladder cancer, as I'm sure you're all familiar with, is basically to treat patients with neoadjuvant cisplatinum-based chemotherapy if they're eligible and able to get cisplatinum therapy. Uh, that provides about a 5 to 7% survival advantage over cystectomy alone, and then they proceed with cystectomy afterwards. Uh, however, uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, that survival advantage is only really seen in chemotherapy responders and patients who are non-responders to neoadjuvant chemotherapy may potentially be harmed by delaying curative cystectomy. And so this is the initial SWOG trial that, that um, is the most supporting of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. This is some data from uh, MSK looking at downstaging um, after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And as can be seen both in the SWOG trial with PT0 rates, these patients do very well long-term uh, compared to patients with residual disease. And in the MSK experience, this is looking for any patients with downstaging to less than muscle invasive disease compared to patients with residual muscle invasive disease after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. You know, there, there's obvious split between, between these curves here. 
And so the question for these patients who do very well with new adjuvant chemotherapy is, um, you know, this is the, the sort of the frequent question that gets uh, asked from a patient when they don't have any residual disease after chemotherapy and you remove their bladder at cystectomy. And it's, it's common to sort of give them, you know, good news, there's no residual cancer present and you have an excellent chance at long-term durable uh, survival. And it's not infrequent for patients to ask why, the, you know, if there wasn't any cancer left in my bladder, then why did you need to remove it surgically and leave them either with a neobladder or a conduit, et cetera? Um, and so that is um, sometimes a difficult question to, ans uh, to answer. But um, the fact of the matter is, based off our current, uh, you know, abilities at doing clinical staging, whether it's with uh, integration of MRIs or even post-chemotherapy TURBTs, uh, our post-chemo clinical restaging protocols with that alone are quite inaccurate. So there was a SWOG study from uh, several decades ago at this point uh, where patients were presented with the option of immediate uh, cystectomy versus observation. Somewhere around 40% of patients who had clinically uh, no evidence of disease uh, who underwent a uh, immediate cystectomy were found to have residual muscle invasive disease. And this was seen in uh, pre recent work, both from the Hopkins group, as well as the, the group at Fox Chase as well. So uh, unfortunately, despite our best intentions, um, clinical staging alone, even when TURBT is performed is frequently inaccurate. And so the question is, can we use molecular biomarkers for cisplatinum sensitivity to identify patients who may potentially be managed with, with just uh, TUR and neoadjuvant chemotherapy alone and potentially safely avoid the need for cystectomy and avoid the need for chemoradiation? Uh, and so the, these investigations included what was called an extreme phenotype analysis, basically taking patients who did really well with neoadjuvant chemotherapy had complete pathologic responses and taking patients who did unfortunately poorly with neoadjuvant chemotherapy with uh, residual muscle invasive disease and comparing their genomic profile. And so this is an investigation from Ellie Van Allen's group, as well as Jonathan Rosenberg, um, Ellie Van Allen at Dana-Farber and the Broad. Um, and so whole exome sequencing of 25 responders and 25 non-responders and interestingly enough, when they compared the genomic profiles for responders versus non-responders, what was found is that uh, responders to neoadjuvant chemotherapy had an enrichment in this gene called ERCC2, a DNA damage repair gene. Uh, so ERCC2 is a nucleotide excision repair pathway gene. It's actually involved, not surprisingly, in repair of uh, cisplatinum-induced DNA damage. Um, and so it is essentially a helicase that unwinds DNA to allow the DNA repair mechanisms to come in. And so if ERCC2 is present within the tumor itself, uh, the tumor is able to repair any of the damage from cisplatinum um, and continue to grow as a tumor. However, if there is ERCC2 loss and there is impaired DNA damage repair, uh, then this results in sort of the tumor cells being overwhelmed by the DNA damage and it results in cancer cell death. So again, sort of the concept of synthetic lethality, where if an ERCC2 mutation is present, uh, then cisplatinum may potentially almost act as targeted therapy and overwhelm and lead to cell death. Uh, so ERCC2 as seen here in the TCGA is present in about 
12% of all muscle invasive tumors. Uh, interestingly enough, it is uh, enriched in patients responding to neoadjuvant chemotherapy in that Ellie Van Allen paper, um, but it's present in about 12%, 10% or so in unselected cohorts of muscle invasive bladder cancer. And it is a gene that appears to be unique in bladder cancer. It's most commonly mutated uh, in bladder cancer compared to other cancer types profiled by the TCGA. Um, there, in that publication, they did some um, in vitro experiments that basically showed that uh, functional validation with, um, with ERCC2 missense mutations where they are more sensitive than the wild type uh, cell line to cisplatinum, especially increasing concentrations of cisplatinum. Uh, so that provided some functional validation. Uh, it's also noted that tumors with ERCC2 uh, missense mutations have higher uh, mutational burden overall as seen over here, uh, and that this may be potentially giving these tumors a selective growth advantage. So um, the lack of repair uh, capabilities from ERCC2 loss allows these mutations to accumulate more and more in these tumors. So these tumors may potentially be more aggressive at initial presentation, but then that, that could be therapeutically exploited and then become more sense as they're more sensitive to cisplatinum chemotherapy. So a very interesting concept. Um, and so how true is this? And so this is uh, some clinical validations of ERCC2 in patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, this is in the uh, Fox Chase cohort of patients. And so the presence of an ERCC2 missense mutation, uh, these patients did exquisitely well uh, with uh, dose-dense MVAC uh, compared to patients who did not have an ERCC2 missense mutation. This is in the Dana-Farber and MSK discovery cohort. Uh, it was from the Ellie Van Allen paper. And in this paper, uh, again, patients with ERCC2 missense mutations uh, did exquisitely well. Obviously it's not perfect, not everyone. Some patients did recur. Uh, however, they did much better than patients without an ERCC2 missense mutation. Um, this was further investigated in a phase two clinical trial here at MSK, as well as at UNC, uh, looking at dose-dense gemcitabine cisplatinum. Um, and so in this clinical trial, patients actually got six cycles of dose-dense gemcitabine uh, and then proceeded with standard of care cystectomy. And then retrospectively, uh, the uh, tumor tissues were looked at um, to see if we could find predictors of response to new adjuvant chemotherapy. And in this investigation, again, ERCC2 was enriched in the, uh, the responders to new adjuvant chemotherapy. Other uh, DNA damage repair genes also appeared to be enriched in patients responding. And so the, sense of the specificity of this, this panel of genes was about 92% um, for identifying pathologic complete responses, or, or I should say pathologic downstaging, as they also included patients with uh, CIS of the bladder. Um, and the positive predictive value was 88%. Uh, and just as previously seen, patients with uh, DNA damage mutations did exquisitely well long-term compared to patients with uh, DNA damage repair gene wild type profiles. Uh, so this led to the uh, development of an alliance cooperative group trial 
which initially was only looking at dose-dense gemcitabine, but has since been modified and is now essentially uh, allowing for investigator choice of uh, gemcitabine, either standard treatment or dose-dense uh, uh, gemcitabine for six cycles. A couple of things to note for this trial. Um, unlike some of the retrospective investigations looking to see if we could uh, clinically restage patients after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. In this trial, uh, these tumors are carefully selected or these patients and their tumors are carefully selected. Um, so it's limited, uh, basically minimal carcinoma in situ, only one muscle invasive tumor and the tumor needs to be relatively smaller in size, no tumor greater than five centimeters. Uh, it's basically for patients who, um, you know, sort of the optimal candidate potentially for bladder preservation. Uh, these patients are getting treated um, with their uh, new adjuvant chemotherapy gem cytamine cisplatinum regimen of choice. And while they're receiving new adjuvant chemotherapy, their tumor is undergoing uh, targeted exome sequencing uh, panel for one of these genes over here, uh, looking for deleterious somatic alterations. Um, and then based off their molecular profile, uh, if they have a DNA damage repair gene alteration present, then they're undergoing a post-chemotherapy TURBT, and it is described as aggressive because um, you know, we want to make sure that there isn't any deposits that are sub-epithelial. Uh, and if there is no residual invasive disease present, then those patients are eligible for bladder sparing basically by, by surveillance cystoscopy, so avoiding uh, radical cystectomy and of potentially avoiding uh, the need for chemo radiation. If there is any uh, residual invasive disease and they proceed with radical cystectomy, uh, if they have a DNA damaged uh, wild type uh, tumor, then they'll proceed with radical cystectomy or they could opt for chemo radiation. Uh, and so this is, uh, you know, sort of a biomarker driven trial uh, based off some, some uh, pretty good uh, preclinical as well as translational research leading up to it uh, to prospectively validate this concept of whether or not we could prospectively identify uh, patients who will respond to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and uh, potentially avoid the need for, for radical treatment with either surgery or uh, chemo radiation. So the primary endpoint for this uh, needs to be a very high bar because as we've discussed, these patients who respond to new adjuvant chemotherapy do very well following um, radical cystectomy. So the primary endpoint is recurrence-free survival at three years, but even more importantly will be the durability of response. So I would expect just like patients treated with chemotherapy and radiation, uh, that recurrences within the bladder will be identified. Uh, but you know, if, the, if those patients are able to be spared and, and, and salvaged uh, with further intravescal treatments uh, and avoid, um, you know, on what will potentially could be a preventable bladder cancer death, then this could be a very viable option going forward where we're using genomic profile uh, profiles to, uh, to guide patient care. And so, you know, there are other potential biomarkers of cisplatinum sensitivity as well. This is a panel from the uh, Fox Chase group looking at ATM, RB1, and FANC-C. Uh, and this led for, to their retained trial, which uh, they recently just presented in abstract form at GU ASCO, some of their preliminary data looking at this. Um, and this is a similar concept. Um, notable differences within their panel of genes, 
Uh, they're also including RB1, which there's a little bit of controversy about whether or not that's actually a DNA damage repair gene. It's also one of the, out of all the genes that are listed here, uh, it's the most commonly mutated in bladder cancer. So we'll have a better idea about whether or not RB1 uh, is actually sensitizing to cisplatinum uh, chemotherapy based off the results of this trial. Uh, but essentially patients are treated with um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, dose-dense MVAC, and then they undergo their post-chemotherapy uh, TURBT. And if there's no residual disease and they have a mutation uh, positive, then they undergo active surveillance where if they, if they, have, um, uh, they have a mutation present and they have um, some residual non-muscle invasive disease present, then the patient decides how they would like to proceed. Uh, and the same if they have a complete clinical response with, without the presence of uh, a mutation, uh, one of these mutations here, then they decide between either uh, intravesical treatment, chemo radiation or cystectomy. And then for anyone with, uh, with uh, T2 disease, you know, or T3 or higher, they undergo treatment with cystectomy or chemo radiation. Um, and so, you know, these are just two examples of biomarker driven clinical trials. And I think we're all anxiously awaiting to see how these, the, the results of these trials go. Um, as I sort of alluded to before, there are, uh, uh, gene expression, RNA-based subtypes, molecular subtypes of bladder cancer. Uh, again, I don't have too much time to go into the detail of that, but essentially there are uh, these basal subtypes, which some think that uh, they may be more sensitive to neoadjuvant chemotherapy compared to the luminal or non-basal uh, non subtypes. And you know, an example of a potential cooperative group type study that has been discussed um, and I believe is still under uh, consideration is based off this biomarker analysis where essentially combining the, the DNA damage repair gene uh, mutational status uh, along with the presence of these, these molecular subtypes. So patients with basal or DNA damage uh, mutations may proceed with neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to radical cystectomy where patients with a DNA damage uh, repair gene wild type tumor or a patient with uh, a luminal subtype of tumor uh, who are thought to not uh, respond well to new adjuvant chemotherapy would then proceed directly to radical cystectomy. Again, I emphasize that this, none of these have necessarily been proven prospectively. And so these are for clinical trial purposes only. Um, and I don't think that either the molecular subtypes or DNA damage repair gene status should be guiding current patient management. And we should be enrolling these patients in clinical trials um, you know, so we could further advance the field. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to highlight some of the ongoing um, ideas or concepts that are, that are uh, on, the, on the cusp of uh, becoming clinical trials. Um, and so what about DNA damage repair genes within non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Uh, so they are actually also quite pervasive, but predominantly in high-grade non-muscle invasive disease. And so uh, if we look over here, ERCC2, that same gene that we were just discussing on the previous slides, very common in high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, 
uh, fairly uncommon in patients with low-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And if we look at mutational burden, which is the total number of mutations based off the uh, megabases of DNA that's actually sequenced, uh, we see that high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is actually quite similar to muscle invasive bladder cancer in terms of a higher tumor mutational burden. Uh, and it's notably higher than low-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And for tumors, with a ERCC2 um, missense mutation or a DNA damage repair gene alteration in general, they have a much higher tumor mutational burden than tumors that are unaltered uh, in the high-grade non-muscle invasive disease uh, patients. Um, this was also further validated by the Dana-Farber group, looking at their, their group of 126 high-grade tumors. Again, ERCC2 is quite prevalent in high-grade non-muscle invasive disease, and it is, again, associated with a higher tumor mutational burden, similar to muscle invasive tumors, and much higher than low-grade non-muscle invasive tumors. And again, uh, if you have a DNA damage repair gene alteration, uh, the tumor mutational burden is higher than uh, if you are a DNA damage repair gene wild type tumor. Um, and so this is pretty interesting because we know that bladder cancer, and this is muscle invasive specimens, have a very high um, mutational burden, which is uh, thought to lead to potential formation of tumor neoantigens that could be recognized by the immune system. And this is particularly relevant in immune checkpoint treated tumors. And so if you look at increasing mutational burden on the x-axis here compared to the objective response rate for uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, and you look to see as tumor mutational burden increases, the objective response rate amongst multiple cancer types increases as well. And urothelial cancer is right over here, sort of dead center right along this, this line um, present. And it's thought that patients responding to immune checkpoint inhibitors are, are so-called have that benefit of the long tail of survival. Um, and so this is particularly interesting, especially since most non-muscle invasive high-grade tumors are treated with BCG, at least when it's uh, clinically available and not in a time of shortage. Um, and so we know that BCG is a non-specific immunotherapy. Um, and we know that BCG actually is the original immunotherapy. And for a very long time, we know that it has a long tail just like the immune checkpoint inhibitors. So this is from Dr. Lamb and colleagues from 1991, where they comment on this long tail from BCG compared to chemo, intravesical chemotherapy treatments. Uh, so this is quite interesting. Uh, when we looked at our experience with uh, in high-grade non-muscle invasive uh, specimens, as previously mentioned, ERCC2 missense mutations are associated with higher mutational burden. Uh, and these mutations, just like in muscle invasive disease, actually uh, cluster around the helicase domain, where it's particularly responsible for unwinding DNA. Uh, so very similar mutations. And it, this is not statistically significant, but as we increase our numbers, this is uh, increasing association we're interested in. But it appears that uh, patient uh, that tumors with ERCC2 uh, mutations may be more sensitive, or DNA damage repair gene alterations in general may be more sensitive to BCG. This needs further investigation and further um, validation. Uh, but uh, interesting hypothesis is, is currently being generated. And if we look uh, from data from the Dana-Farber group again, uh, this is looking at 62 high-grade T1 tumors that were treated with BCG and they divided 
their cohort into three groups. Uh, one was good outcome, those that had recurrence and those that had progressive disease. If you look at the patients who had a good outcome, which they defined as no recurrences with greater than four years of follow-up, uh, they found that a good outcome was associated with higher tumor mutational burden, uh, ERCC2 missense mutations, even when they adjusted for tumor mutational burden, as well as mutational signatures, uh, both APOBEC as well as ERCC2, which are associated with higher tumor mutational burden uh, in ERCC2 associated mutational signatures, not surprisingly, are also associated with ERCC2 missense mutations. And so again, all sort of suggesting that um, that uh, DNA damage repair genes may be associated with a favorable response to BCG. Um, find this particularly interesting because in our investigation, looking at patients who presented with the novo muscle invasive bladder cancer compared to patients who were initially diagnosed with non-muscle invasive disease, treated with BCG, uh, and then unfortunately progressed to what we're calling secondary muscle invasive bladder cancer. What you'll see here is in two independent cohorts of patients, um, there was a statistically significant difference between the frequency of ERCC2 missense mutations, which are associated with uh, sensitivity to cisplatinum chemotherapy in patients with primary muscle invasive disease compared to those with secondary muscle invasive bladder cancer. And then in a prospective validation cohort, uh, we saw this, this same findings with 17% uh, ERCC2 missense mutations in patients with primary muscle invasive disease, but none seen in patients with secondary muscle invasive disease. And this certainly has uh, potential clinical implications. Uh, and as we've discussed previously, these genes are associated potentially with response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so it, it shouldn't be surprising that when we looked at our clinical outcomes for these patients. Again, small numbers and needs to be validated, certainly prospectively, uh, but patients with secondary muscle invasive bladder cancer had worse outcomes with neoadjuvant chemotherapy compared to those that present with uh, primary muscle invasive disease. And this aligns with a, a previous study from 2004 that looked again at primary versus secondary muscle invasive disease. Uh, that found that in this cohort, 40% were treated with systemic chemotherapy, uh, but they found that patients with secondary muscle invasive bladder cancer did worse um, compared to patients with primary muscle invasive disease. And this sort of uh, is a little bit provocative because it, it suggests that potentially that um, uh, BCG immunotherapy, which may be uh, very uh, um, selective or sensitizing to ERCC2 missense mutations may result in what is called clonal selection. So the uh, basically the ERCC2 uh, clones are eliminated by BCG. And then when they recur, uh, they tend to be uh, ERCC2 wild type tumors and more likely to be resistant to subsequent systemic chemotherapy. Um, again, needs to be prospectively validated. And it's also very possible that tumors that uh, progressed to secondary muscle invasive bladder cancer may not have any ERCC2 missense mutations. Uh, and so this needs to be further investigated. And, you know, this is a area of certainly active investigation for my group, as well as some other groups as well. Um, so at this point, I'm going to conclude my talk. Uh, hopefully you guys were able to, you know, last this entire time. I know that, uh, you know, sometimes these talks can be a little bit boring, but I tried to focus on some of the clinical implications. So it's a little bit more interesting. Um, but the, 
take homes that I wanted to leave you guys all with is that uh, chromatin modifying genes are highly pervasive across all stages and grades in bladder cancer. And this could have potential implications for urine-based screening and surveillance approaches. Uh, they also could be therapeutic uh, opportunities for, uh, for, for drugs, uh, drug development. Um, and there is numerous other potentially actionable alterations in uh, both muscle invasive as well as non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. I focus primarily just on FGFR3 since it's the first FDA approved targeted therapy, but there's certainly more targeted therapies to come uh, in the near future. And then, uh, you know, we, we uh, quickly went over some of the data on the DNA damage repair genes that may be potentially an avenue to predict who will be uh, excellent responders to new adjuvant chemotherapy and could potentially avoid uh, the need for radical cystectomy or, uh, or, or chemotherapy. And then finally, we briefly discussed some, some of the potential implications for DNA damage repair genes in uh, predicting BCG response, as well as potentially in non-muscle invasive progression to secondary muscle invasive bladder cancer. Thank you very much for your time and your attention. Uh, please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions um, or if I could be in help, uh, of help in any way. Um, and then uh, please uh, also uh, fill out this survey uh, so we can get some feedback. And, and uh, I wanna thank the uh, organizers for the Urology COVID lecture series. I think this is a wonderful uh, way uh, during these very challenging times for, um, you know, for the residents and fellows uh, to keep up to date on what's going on in urology. I hope all, everyone is uh, happy and healthy uh, and remain safe and hopefully we'll be able to get some meetings in in the near future. Uh, please feel free to reach out to me at any time. Thank you again for your time and attention. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.